I want to ask you to grab your Bible and open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We're going to look at this passage that goes from verses, verse 1 through verse 13. And I'm going I'm to prepare you. Uh, this, is a, this is a warning. And um, this is not a warning because I, as an outsider, as I'm aware of some sort of a major weakness in this church plant. This is just simply a, a warning that I think would be very encouraging because this text has been very encouraging for me. And I think it will be encouraging for you simply because the nature of this warning is a warning against presumption and particularly a type of presumption that's very easy to fall into when you're around rich, robust spiritual resources. And that's exactly what the warning's for. And so knowing the, the, the high caliber of teaching in this church, the, 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 the camaraderie, the equipping ministries, I think this will be an encouraging text for us this morning. Let's, let's read it together. Follow along as I read, starting in chapter 10, verse 1. For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they were drinking from a spiritual rock which was following, which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now these things happened as examples for us, so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act immorally, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. Let's pray. Father, we seek your your favor this morning because we know that we hear you speak every time your word is opened. And so we come before this text with an appropriate sense of intimidation because whatever we read, we must believe. When you state a testimony or a fact, we must embrace it as truth because it is. When we hear a command, we must obey it. When we hear a promise, we must cling to it, even in the face of circumstances that would make it seem impossible. And here... Specifically in this text, when we hear a warning, 
we must heed it. It would be, Lord, it would be to our detriment. Personally, to every child of God in this church, it would be a detriment to us, personally, if we did not heed this text. And then, of course, we also know that we, we're not a, an island to ourselves. We are members of your body. And so if we did not heed this text, we would be a detriment to the church. And so, Lord, this morning I just pray for grace. I pray that your spirit would bring to each and every one of us not only conviction, but also comfort. And not only comfort, but also effective power. Pay heed to these warnings. To be appropriately concerned and aware of threats that come, even from being a part of such a wonderfully rich church with spiritual resources. I pray that we would never presume on those resources. That we would never be arrogant about the exposure that we have or the things that we know or the hum and success of ministry life. Even the growing influence in this community that needs a light for the gospel. Lord, everything that's happening here is such a thrill and a privilege and a a grace and a blessing. I pray that it would never feed the subtle sin of presumption. That we might never become arrogant about what you would do through us. We want to remain humble and useful. And so, Lord, I pray that you'd make this text a, a living reality in this congregation, starting with each and every one of us in our own hearts. Give us the appropriate sobriety to listen and to obey this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. I have a friend at my church in Tempe who was a football player. He was a very successful football player in high school and then college and then went on to play arena football. So if you, if you know anything about sports, arena football is kind of like, like, the, it's like the halfway between you know, like a college all-star level and uh, NFL. It's not NFL level and it's not college level. And he described to me kind of the, the, uh, the nature of who plays in, in arena football. He said it's just an interesting, an interesting um, scattering of, of athletic ability. You've got people in arena football who are just, they have worked and worked and worked, and they are devoted, they are refining their game, they are in, under strict training to be at top-notch condition, and that's the only way they got to that level. And at the same time, he said, there's also guys who just like, yawn, roll out of bed, show up, and they're kind of like just somewhat dominant, and if they'd had any discipline in their life, they probably would have been in the NFL. And I remember him telling me that, and I thought, that's an interesting, interesting reality. You think about how much presumption goes with some of those athletes who just have this God-given ability, and he's like, these guys don't even lift weights, and they look like they're on the cover of a magazine, and it's just, you know, the rest of us are trying to work and work and work. And sometimes when we have ability, a resource, or some sort of privilege, it can be a real temptation to presume. Now, usually the consequence, especially when we start thinking about spiritual presumption, the consequences get much more significant. Even secular presumption is usually more significant than what league of football you play over the rest of your life. As a historical example of overconfidence um, from Daniel chapter 5, don't turn there, just listen for a second, but if you think of Belshazzar, remember the king who was smug and complacent in his palace, very confident, because if, you, if you're not aware, Babylon was the world superpower of world superpowers, and Babylon had never been conquered before. In fact, not only had they never been conquered before, but they had stockpiled supplies that even if they are under siege, they, could, they would be sufficient for years. 
And so Cyrus shows up, and he puts the city under siege. And what do they do in Babylon? They throw a party. Whatever. Are you kidding me? What could they possibly do? I mean, after all, we're Babylon. We've never been conquered. We've got supplies for years. They're going to run out of supplies before. They, they can't hold up a siege as long as we can sit here and just laugh at them. And, of course, Herodotus tells the story in his history, kind of the story behind the story, historical background to Daniel 5. Herodotus tells us what happened is that the general built a dam upstream on the Euphrates, and the Euphrates flowed into uh, Babylon, and they put the dam upstream, diverted the entire river, and it, the, the, the water starts lowering slowly late at night. By the time they get to the middle of the night, it's just knee-high, and the entire army walks into the city underneath the gates that were, would have been closed off to any ship. Now, they're just walking through just knee-deep water, and then they wake up, and they're absolutely, completely annihilated. When you think about spiritual presumption, we can start to get a little bit smug and complacent, kind of like Belshazzar sitting in Babylon. We can start to imagine, you know, because of the spiritual teaching we have, because of the equipping ministries we have, because of the influence and, and the growth and the movement and the momentum, we can start to imagine that that means we will automatically overcome temptation. Or that means we are always going to be useful. Or that means that this couldn't help but be fruitful. It always has, it always will. And some of you are even here because maybe you've come from churches where you, you haven't had sound teaching. And you're, you came here because the Spirit of God within you was producing in you this appetite to know truth, to grow. You, you long to be more like Christ, and you needed those resources. And you come and you're finding a church where you're getting resources. And it's just thrilling, and it's just awesome. And your appetite is just only increasing, and it's just humbling. And I just want to say, this is an important text for us this morning, who are exposed to spiritual privilege and spiritual resource. Here's the way I would say it. The greater one's knowledge, the greater the threat of presumption. And the greater one's presumption, the greater the threat of temptation. And so this is a warning about presuming. Presuming on what we know, presuming on what we've been exposed to, presuming on spiritual privileges we have, especially in a theologically rich church plant. Don't presume. And so if we look at this text, before I start kind of showing you the flow of the text, the whole text, it's important to recognize that this entire passage starts with a simple word, for. Look at verse 1, for. So to understand what Paul's doing in this passage, we need to remember that he's connecting it to chapter 9, verse 24 to 27. So I need to quickly go back and read that paragraph. Just follow along now and think, when, when, when we read 10, 1 to 13, remember that when we read that passage that we're looking at this morning, Paul's actually answering the question of, well, why did you say what you said in 9, 24 to 27? Why did you say that, Paul? So let's read that paragraph, and then we'll ask that question. Why'd you say that? And then he, we get the answer in 10.1 and following. So 9.24. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. And the comparison, obviously, is some sort of physical competition in the Olympics and a wreath that just perishes versus a crown that lasts forever for the Christian. Verse 26, therefore I run in such a way not as without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. 
but I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. This is a paragraph about Paul, and he's been talking for two chapters now, starting in 8.1 all the way through the end of 10, three chapters in total. He's been talking for two chapters about liberties and the threat that a selfish use of liberties would be to the church. Using of liberties and using of things that could be right to be enjoyed, but doing it for selfish reasons, that will ruin a man. That will ruin a woman. And so he says, I'm actually disciplining my body so that every, my contribution to the church is self-controlled and that I would not be disqualified after preaching the gospel to others. And this word disqualified really means rejected. To be rejected, to be disqualified, to be rejected as, as having anything to offer to the church. Because what would happen is, if you theologically come up with a way to use liberties for selfish gain, you'll be a threat to the church. So... Why'd you say that, Paul? Because here's, here's, here's why I said that. Chapter 10. To sum it up, the reason why Paul says it is because the same thing happened to the Exodus generation. They had so much spiritual privilege, and they squandered it. And so as we study this passage, we now realize that's where we're sitting in the text, in the flow And we're going to benefit from just looking at the example that Paul's pointing out. It's an inspired example. And as he says, it was written so that we would benefit from even from their failure. Now, as we work through this passage, I'm just going to give you some points that kind of help you understand the connection here with spiritual privilege and how it might tempt you to um, spiritual presumption. So in verses 1 to 5, he actually describes the spiritual privilege. In verses 1 to 5, he's going to explain to us how much spiritual privilege the Exodus generation enjoyed. They had so many spiritual benefits. They had so many spiritual assets. They had so many things going for them. And as we'll see, they squandered it. And that starts in verse 6 and following. So let's just look, look at verses 1 to 5. As I read this, you might have picked up on a repetition of a word that kept coming up in virtually every single verse. Five times in five verses, Paul says the word all. Let me read it one more time with emphasis. For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food And all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. In in four verses, you have five uses of the word all. What's the point? They all had the same spiritual privilege. Every single one of them had the same spiritual resources. They heard the same sermons. They were under Moses' ministry. I mean, look at what he says here. Under the cloud, passing through the sea. I mean, that's the divine presence in the cloud by day, the fire by night. They crossed through the Red Sea. I mean, they all saw God drown the military of the current world superpower under the waters of the Red Sea. They were all immersed, verse 2, into Moses' ministry in the cloud and in the sea. They're watching Moses' leadership, God working in supernatural ways through a prophet who's giving them God's words. This is profound spiritual privilege. I mean, you think, you think we've got a good here and a good church like this. I mean, 
Deuteronomy is the last four Shabbat sermons from Moses. That's what it is. It's four sermons from Moses. I mean, they're hearing Moses preach. Verse 3, they all ate the same spiritual food. When it comes to feeding their soul, they are feeding on the same spiritual diet. And this is Moses, the prototype of every prophet to come, and even a prototype of Jesus Christ when it comes to being a man speaking God's words in a way that we could hear it. Deuteronomy 18. They ate the same spiritual food. Verse 4, they drank the same spiritual drink. They had the same spiritual cuisine, the same spiritual buffet, the same spiritual drink. They are nourishing their souls on the same spiritual diet. Now, how can Paul say that? Because in verse 4 he says, For they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. And that little half of a verse in verse 4 has become no small controversy in Christian discussion. What's happening here is Paul is pointing out that this wilderness generation, the Exodus generation, experienced, watch this, the personal ministry of the Lord Christ himself. He just didn't have the name Jesus yet. He just hadn't taken on humanity yet. But it's the exact same person. These people are squandering ministry from the pre-incarnate Christ. Now, when we get to this verse, I do need to say that a lot of people get to this verse and they use this verse kind of as a, an argument for saying that's actually what Paul's doing here is how we need to read the Old Testament. And they come to this verse and they might look at this and say, okay, Paul says that they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them and the rock was Christ. Okay, so when did they drink from a rock? Well, Exodus 17, Massah and Meribah, they're complaining because they're thirsty and Moses strikes the rock and they drink. And so people come to this verse and they say, oh, okay, so, so what, what Paul is doing is Paul is reading into Exodus 17 that, that he's just making a, a metaphor. It's, it's a way to read it in a Christocentric way. So Christ is the rock. That's what Paul's doing. And they defend even a, an entire way to read Scripture that just looks for Christ in, in every passage and makes him the interpretive lens. And, and that's really problematic for a lot of reasons. I mean, first of all, it's like, why would you pick one person of the Trinity uh, to be the hermeneutical centerpiece? I mean, if you were supposed to pick one, it seems like just reading Scripture, you should pick the Father. But anyway, we, I mean, we heard in the Quipping Hour, uh, Brandon taught on uh, the role of the Holy Spirit. He is equally God, equally worthy of worship. So, so why would we single out one person of the Trinity? Secondly, another problem with that is it prevents growth in, in our knowledge. Because what happens is if the way that I read Scripture is that I'm supposed to look and find Christ well, then where did I get my knowledge of Christ? Every single time I read the scripture, I have to interpret it through the lens of what I currently know about Christ to figure out if I'm reading the text right. Well, suddenly, I cut myself off from growing in my knowledge of Christ because I have to read it through this Christocentric lens that I have to impose on the scripture. I gotta hear the scripture tell me about Christ and tell me about the spirit and tell me about apostasy and tell me about temptation and tell me about myself and tell me about everything. Whatever God wants to tell me about, I should wanna hear it. But another real problem, and this gets my blood boiling, is it really reflects a low ability of God's, a, real, a, low, a low estimation of God's speaking ability. Can we just admit, I think God knows how to speak. I think he gave us speech ability. 
He keeps talking as a trinity for eternity past, and then he creates us in his image, and then we start speaking to one another and speaking to him. I think language ability is derived from being created in the image of God. I think that's a divine ability. So we do not need to start critiquing God's ability to speak. I think he knows how to do it. And so I have a lot of reasons there's, this is a problem. But nevertheless, people who say those things would go to this verse. So now we've got, we've got to look at this. What, what's Paul doing here? He just grabs this idea of spiritual food, spiritual drink, and says that this Exodus generation was feasting on the personal ministry of Christ. The rock was Christ. So, did, did Paul go to Exodus and just read Jesus in because he's a New Testament believer? Well, people conclude that he did, but I'm afraid they actually, I wonder if they've actually read Exodus. Let's do that. That's probably a good tactic. Let's try that. Let's go back and read Exodus for a second and see what happens. Exodus is going to show us so much about what's going on here. And let's just look, verse, first of all, at Exodus 23. And I, we only have time to look at a few passages um, in Exodus. But I think this will be clear just if we limit ourselves to some of the main ones here. Exodus 23. And I know that this is after the Exodus account itself. But it's an important, it's probably one of the most important messianic texts in all of Scripture. Exodus chapter 23, verse 20 God is speaking to Moses, and he says, Behold, I'm going to send an angel before you. And the word angel is a messenger. The Hebrew word malach is messenger or angel. And I'm going to send my messenger before you to guard you along the way and to bring you into the place which I have prepared. Be on your guard before him and obey his voice. Do not be rebellious toward him, for he will not pardon your transgression since my name is in him. That is a mouthful. God Almighty just said, I'm sending my messenger, and don't you dare be rebellious against him. Don't disobey him. And then he says, my name is in him. And the word name is not just a label. The word name is character, essence. Your name is your reputation. In the sense of name equaling reputation in the English language, that's about as close as we can get to the word name here. It means his essence. My essence is in him. Now look at verse 22. But if you truly obey his voice and do all that I say, wait, wait, well, which is it? Is it God or is it the messenger? Am I supposed to obey the messenger's voice or am I supposed to do all that God says? Yes. Yes. If you truly obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. For my angel, my messenger, will go before you and bring you into the land. And so the function of this messenger is to get the people into the promised land. That's the function of, the, of this messenger. In fact, what's really fun about you start with Exodus 23. Now when you read your Old Testament, if you read through the scriptures uh, in a regular basis, just pay attention to every time the messenger of Yahweh comes up in the Old Testament. Every single time it's messianic. And you're going to start seeing him show up in contexts where it has to do with hostility against the people of God and the promises of God. David starts to invoke the help of the angel of the Lord when he has a promise that his son's going to reign. And if he gets killed, then that's the end of redemptive history. So he starts appealing to the angel of the Lord to protect him. He starts making sense of a whole lot of what's going on in the Old Testament when you understand this prophecy. But well, let's just, we've got to focus on Exodus here for a second. Let's go back now and let's look at what happens. 
There's another uh, story that starts to point out that there's something interesting happening that we need to pay very careful attention to, namely with two divine people in Exodus chapter 3. Go back 20 chapters to the burning bush. That's our introduction to the divine essence of the angel of the Lord. But now we start realizing the angel of the Lord is all over the Old Testament before Exodus 23 and after. Here's one example where it's before Exodus 23. Verse 1, Moses was pasturing the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, and the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush. Who appeared to him? You got it, angel of the Lord. The angel of Yahweh, the messenger of Yahweh, shows up to Moses. And so in this conversation between Moses and this divine speaker, we realize that it's, it's not God the Father. It's, it's Yahweh, the, the angel, the messenger of Yahweh. So I'll skip down to the conversation that happens. He's going to send him, he's going to send Moses to Pharaoh, verse 10. Moses replies, and look at, look at how he, Moses writes this. I mean, Moses is now recording the story of his own story as he's writing scripture, and it says, but Moses said to God. So he can turn right around and say, the angel of the Lord is clearly God, because he's talking to the angel of the Lord, he's talking to God. Moses says to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh, that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, certainly I will be with you, and this will be the sign to you, that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God at this mountain. Then Moses said to God, Behold, I'm going to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, What is his name? What shall I tell them? And so God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Don't stop there. Keep going. We need one more verse. Verse 15. God furthermore said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial name to all generations. The angel of Yahweh can also take the name Yahweh to himself. Now, that's just, this is profound. This is probably starting to blow our circuits a little bit. Because we're looking at the, the nature of divine persons who share the same essence. And I, and I want to do one more thing here before we look at a couple more passages to, to, so we can see what Paul is seeing. You remember the story, I'm just going to appeal here because we don't have time to look at all these passages. Remember the story of the first birth, Adam and Eve, God has just said, you're going to have a seed. And through the seed, what's going to happen? I'm going to produce hostility between those who've been influenced by Satan and the seed of woman. When God says that promise in Genesis 3.15, mankind is currently completely in an alliance with Satan. And God's promising to produce animosity between those two parties. And it's going to happen through a seed of Eve. Next chapter, they have a boy, and she says, in the NAS it says, I've begotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. And you'll notice with the help of is in italics because it's not in the original. It just has a, a marker in the Hebrew that quite often can just mean 
it's a renaming of a noun. And I believe that she says, I have begotten a man-child, comma, Yahweh. Did you know that's the first historical use of the word Yahweh? Moses uses that word for God in the creation account. Of course, Yahweh is creating. But the first historical, the first recorded historical use of the name Yahweh was Eve calling her child Yahweh. What? Was she right? No, of course she was wrong. She found out by the end of the chapter. Of course. She's She's taking the promise of literal face value and you're like, okay, I guess that wasn't it. But she's right in her expectation that the seed promise would be fulfilled through an actual human. What is the meaning of the name Yahweh? It's a Hebrew verb. Hey, um, hava means to become. And Yahava is third singular. It's, it's kind of an imperfect tense. He will become. The significance of that statement would be, oh, I've begotten a child. I mean, we've never even heard of a birth before. This has never happened before. But God said it would be through uh, my seed that we would see redemptive promises come. So, okay, this is, he will be the one. And then sin proves it, he's not the one. Her hope was right. Her hope was right. God is not, he does not shy away from using that name of himself. God's saying, I will be the one. And you get to Exodus 3, and what's profound is that it's only the angel of Yahweh, the second person of the Trinity, who can take that name and make it first person. And he uses a word, hayah, which means to be. It's kind of a very similar verb to become in both our language and their language. And he's just saying, I will be whom I will be. And he himself connects it with the name Yahweh in verse 15. And the connection is now explicit. He's saying, I'll be the one. The second person of the Trinity had committed and revealed himself to be the future human seed as early as Exodus 3. And now we need to see where he shows up in this story. Let's skip over to Exodus 13. Exodus 13. Okay, we're fast forwarding to the Exodus account itself. And so remember, this is uh, Moses with all the people leaving Egypt. And so in verse 21, Moses records this. Yahweh was going before them in a pillar of cloud by day to lead them on the way and in a pillar of fire by night to give them light that they might travel by day and travel by night. So Yahweh's personal presence is contained and manifested in this kind of epiphany of a cloud by day and fire by night. Skip over to chapter 14. Verse 19. The angel of God. The messenger of God who had been going before the camp of Israel, moved and went behind them. The pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them. What? (laughs) Now we've got the messenger of Yahweh, the messenger of God, the messenger of the covenant. Those are the three names by which he's referred to. Here's the messenger of God. He was in the cloud. He was in the fire. And when the threat, the animosity coming against the people of God who had threatened them from inheriting the promised land was behind them, Yahweh, the, the messenger of Yahweh moves behind the people to protect them from that threat. He's an adversary to every adversary. You read chapter 14, verse 19, and you understand the context. It becomes 
impossible not to recognize what Paul's doing. Paul is not reading anything into Exodus. He's simply reading Exodus. He's just paying attention to the story. Why is that so important? If you read Christ into Exodus, the passage falls apart. It doesn't have the same impact. We actually would feel more presumption because we'd look at this generation and say, well, they don't have the same spiritual privileges we have because we've got Christ. No, they did too. They did too. There he is, right there. Skip over to 1 Corinthians 10 now. And now this, this warning becomes a whole lot more sober. Lest we look down our noses in smug complacency or presumption at a generation that, you know, to be honest, they didn't have as much written revelation, but they certainly had the personal ministry of Christ himself. They were all exposed to that. Verses 1 through 4, they were all exposed to that. And now verse 5 is one of the most classic understatements in all of Scripture. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. You know, and he says most, and we might think, okay, it was like a majority, right? Like here's the spectrum of the people of God. So it just went bumped over 50%. It was right at the 51% marker, a majority. Uh, no, no, it was 99.9999%. Two out of potentially two million who were faithful. With 99.9999%, God was not well pleased. Because they were laid low in the wilderness. They had all of that spiritual privilege. They had all those spiritual resources. They had all of the promises. They had the personal ministry of Christ. They had the mediation of Moses as a prophet. They had the written revelation of God. They had supernatural phenomena. The amount of things that this group was exposed to was far beyond what we have seen uh, because they were seeing revelation happen in their midst and being attested with divine wonders and miracles and signs. So now we've got to look at the spiritual danger. Here's the spiritual danger. Verse 6 through 11. Spiritual danger. In this paragraph, starting in 6 all the way through 11, we're going to see five specific dangers. But here's the spiritual danger is that they still sinned in very common ways. And that cut them off from the ministry of Christ. Verse, five, verse 6. Now these things happened as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. I mean, this is, this is an example for us. And it's, it's recorded in Scripture so that we would benefit. It's not written just so that that generation had this permanent mark on their name, like, look how bad they did it. It's so that we would benefit. We don't have to follow on that same path. And so notice in verses 1 through 5, you have a five-time repetition of the word all. In verses 6 through 10, he repeats the word just as five times. And so in verse 6, you see the first one. In the same way, we would not crave evil things just as they also craved. He makes a comparison about the fact that that generation, the Exodus generation, craved evil things, and we should not either. And we're going to have to fly through these, these specific dangers. But each one of these, I want to show you what exactly is in Paul's mind as he says this. When he's talking about craving evil things, he's thinking of a warning that comes from Numbers chapter 11. And I, wanna, I want you to look at this one. We won't have time to do this for all five of these examples. But Numbers 11 is very important. I'll give you the references for all five, but we just won't have time to read all five. But when it comes to craving evil things, look at the example of the wilderness generation in Numbers 11. I'm going to read verses 1 through 6. 
And, um, and then I'll also read the last little paragraph toward the end of the chapter. Numbers 11. Now the people became like those who complain of adversity in the hearing of the Lord. And when the Lord heard it, his, his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. The people therefore cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died out. So the name of the place was called Tabera because the fire of the Lord burned among them. The rabble, and, and the word rabble there is a word that means Egyptians who came with them in the Exodus. So this would be Egyptians who were faithful. Egyptians who are proselytes now to Judaism because they are now worshiping Yahweh of Israel. The rabble who were among them had greedy desires. And also the sons of Israel wept again and said, Who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish which we used to eat free in Egypt, the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. But now our appetite is gone, and there is nothing at all to look at except this manna. You can see what's happening here. They are craving something. And you think, well, they're craving uh, some green food. They're craving some, some fresh produce. They're craving, you know, a fresh catch. Is it wrong? Are those foods wrong in and of themselves? Listen, wanting anything God has not given you is wrong. He withholds no good thing from those who walk uprightly. And if you don't have it, it's not your good. Wanting what you don't have is wanting something evil. Because God is good. God is all-powerful, and he's all-wise. He knows exactly what you need, and he knows exactly how to give it to you. And they wanted something God hadn't provided. Slavery was better because we had the cuisine we wanted. Craving evil things. They're not trusting the character of God. Let's skip over toward the end of the chapter here. And let's just read the last paragraph, verses 31 to 35. Now there went forth a wind from the Lord, and it brought quail from the sea, and let them fall beside the camp. And about a day's journey on this side, and a day's journey on the other side, all around the camp, and about two cubits deep on the surface of the ground. That's a lot of bread. People spent all day, and all night, and all the next day, and gathered the quail. Um, oh, I'm sorry, that's a lot of quail. I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> yeah, I was reading manna in there. Yeah, that's the quail. That's a lot of quail. They gathered this quail, he who gathered least gathered ten homers, and they spread them out for themselves all around the camp. While the meat was still between their teeth, before it was chewed, the anger of the Lord was kindled against the people, and the Lord struck the people with a very severe plague. So the name of that place was called Kibroth Hata'ava, because there, because there they buried the people who had been greedy. The rare word, it only occurs once in the New Testament, in our passage in 1 Corinthians 10. It occurs three times in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. That's one of them right there. The graves of those who were greedy for evil things. You skip over to, go back to our passage now. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 6. He's saying, this happened as an example for us, so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Believer, you realize craving things that God hasn't given you. Circumstances that God hasn't taken away or circumstances God hasn't led you into or resources that you don't have or responsibilities that you wish you had or responsibilities that you wish you didn't have. Wanting what God has not given you is an evil desire. 
at the root of this is selfishness, self-absorption, self-interest. It's fueled by a theology that does not believe that God is as good as he says he is. It reveals a theology that he is less than he's revealed himself to be, and it's a lack of faith. You are never more prone to fall prey to spiritual temptation and idolatry than when your spiritual knowledge allows you to enjoy liberties for selfish purposes. This fuels spiritual pride. It excuses lust. It opens up judgments against God. We start scrutinizing him and his providence. How's he doing? Are you kidding me? We need to cover our mouths and repent. This, verse 6, really is a, a gateway a gateway sin. You know, we talk about, when we're counseling somebody who's dealing with addictions, we talk about gateway drugs. This is a gateway sin. It leads to all the other sins. Because it's rooted in really bad theology. And it's so subtle. It's so subtle. I mean, some, of this, some on this list, you might immediately, and you, you, you knew that this morning, before you walked in here. Yeah, okay, immorality. Yeah, let's, let's, that's not good. Well, well, how about being so evil as to want something that God hasn't given you when you're in trial? What a better opportunity than to trust God's goodness when we are maybe personally miserable because we know that he knows better than us. I don't want out. I just want to give you glory and honor the glory you deserve. Number two comes in verse seven, idolatry. Number six was greed. Number, I'm sorry, verse six was greed. Verse seven is idolatry. Look at verse seven. Do not be idolaters just as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Idolatry. It's worshiping anything but the God who created everything, the God who revealed himself in Scripture. Worshiping anyone or anything besides him is idolatry. The warning comes from Exodus 32. You see that quote there. The people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. I mean, they are worshiping in their minds. What they said was, let's worship God who brought us out of Egypt. And then they throw in the gold and out comes this calf, right? (laughs) Voila. Okay, that's the image we're going with. But we're worshiping Yahweh just in the form of this calf. It's idolatry because you, you actually imagine that you could create something that would correlate with the greatness and the grandeur of the uncreated God. That's, that's just blasphemy. Okay, so we might be sensitive to that. I don't imagine any of you have a golden calf on your mantle at home and you just bow down to it every day. I'm going to appeal to some help here. I'm going to appeal to one of my historical heroes, more recent historical heroes, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He was a preacher um, in Wales and in London in the last century. And he has this statement about idolatry that I find remarkably helpful. A man's God is that for which he gives himself. He gives his time, his attention, his thought, his money. He lives for it. It is the thing that keeps him going. That reveals what we worship. If it's anything other than the God who revealed himself in Scripture, it's idolatry. And this, of course, is a paramount failure, as verse 14 proves. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. And so, 
we've got to pay attention to the warning of the wilderness generation. After all of that exposure, after all that spiritual privilege, they were this one and the same generation who made the golden calf. Number three, immorality. That comes in verse eight. Nor let us act immorally as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. And I'm just going to leave you with this text. You can look this up, and I'd encourage you to read this. Uh, but for the sake of time, we're going to skip this one. I mean, I'm not skipping it. I'm just going to not take the time to read it. But go back and read Numbers 25, verses 1 through 9. Numbers 25, verses 1 through 9. You'll probably, many of you will remember the story there. Um, the Moabite women are fornicating with the nation of Israel. They're, they're committing immorality. And we find out uh, six chapters later, Numbers 31, that it was instigated by a false prophet named Balaam. Balaam, tried, he, he was trying to find a way to get rich off of Balak, who was willing to hire him to curse the nation. And he just told Balak, look, I can't curse this people because they're protected by God. But like all true false prophets, if you can't if you can't curse them and harm them physically, or if you can't ruin their doctrine, he's just going to contaminate them morally. And so he stirs up this massive fornication between all of these Moabite women and the sons of Israel. And Numbers 25 records the zeal of Phineas, who starts to defend God's honor, and he actually kills uh, two people who are fornicating because he is so zealous for the holiness of God. That's the warning, though. Don't let us act immorally as any of them did. Verse 9, number 4, testing God. Nor let us try the Lord or test the Lord, putting God to the test, as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents. Now that was referring to Numbers chapter 21. Numbers 21 records the story of um, the, the nation of Israel complaining again about food and they are putting God to the test because they're asking God to provide them some, some food that they have not been given. And God starts to strike them with a plague. And so Moses puts the gold snake on the, the, on the, on the, on the pillar. Okay, so you remember the, the gold snake. You see it whenever you see the uh, ambulance, you know, with the, right, with the little emblem on the ambulance of the, the, the snake on top of the pillar. You know, it's Numbers 21. Paul's appealing to that when he says, don't let us test the Lord. Let's talk real quick about testing because I want, to, I want you to be really clear here. The scripture talks about testing God in a couple of ways. Uh, it does say it in a positive way. Uh, for example, in Malachi chapter 3, it talks about putting God to the test. And there, uh, in chapter 3, um, verse 10, God's put to test by actually obeying him when we give sacrificially of a tithe to provide for the alien, the orphan, and the widow and to Foot the bill for what it takes to have a Levitical tribe take out, carry out the, the, civil, the, the cultic worship at the temple. And so those taxes are costly, and the, the men who are working hard to provide their families, they have to trust the Lord. And so Malachi says, put God to the test. Obey him and watch him provide for your family. That's a testing of the Lord that is right, because that's a testing of, I'm going to go ahead and act on faith, I'm going to take him at his word and just watch him be faithful. Amen. This is a warning of a, a testing of the Lord that is not taking God at his word. This is warning about a testing that is putting to God in the test in, in, in the absolutely opposite way, namely 
It's not trusting God and seeing if he comes through on his promises. It's, it's like if I were to say, well, I'll just go ahead and disobey and see if the Lord is faithful. Or it would be like saying, I'll make a demand of God that he never promised he would do and I'll see if he does it. There's a lot of ways we can test God. And that's exactly what the nation did is they attempt to put God to the test by seeing how he would respond to their lack of faith. And in Numbers 21, they start making demands of God, you need to do this. We've got to be careful. If we start making demands of God for anything other than what he has told us he would do, we are testing God. I certainly don't have the time to do this, but I will say, if you have the time to go read Numbers 21, it's just remarkable. Because in Numbers 21, there's a statement. I'm sorry, it's actually Numbers 14, 22, where Moses records that God says to him, these ten times you've put me to the test. And that's literal. Starting in Exodus 14, all the way through Numbers 14, verse 3, you have exactly ten times that the nation put God to the test. This is presumption, presuming on God. The final warning comes in verse 10, the final um, sin that he, he warns us about, and this is where the real threat comes. Number, verse 10, number 5, is grumbling. Fortunately, none of us are guilty of this, so this won't be convicting to any of us. Verse 10. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. And he's referring to Numbers 16, verse 41 through 17, verse 13. There are grumblers, there are complainers, and they are grumbling and complaining against Moses' leadership. The sons of Korah are destroyed, and there's still people grumbling and complaining against his leadership after the earth opens up and swallows Korah and his family. This is a grumbling that's rooted in selfishness. These grumblers are discontent with Moses and Aaron's leadership, so they put themselves forward. They're grumbling against God's will. They're expressing self-desire. They're, they're whining. They're complaining. They're causing dissension. I mean, this is so subtle. Because in the, in the church, we could be walking along, functioning on all cylinders, feeling like we're just playing our part, and then all of a sudden we feel like you just get blindsided by some sort of you know, massive area of contention or quarreling in the church simply because someone wasn't willing to die to self and they were grumbling and they're complaining about some right that they think they have with their liberties or in their church or areas of responsibility. And so they grumble and complain because they're trying to gratify selfish desires. Verse verse 11 then concludes this, this spiritual danger by saying this, now these things happen to them as an example. And they were written for our instruction, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Paul's actually reading the Torah literally. And he's pulling out the example of what they ought to be and how they ought to function for us. So now the real question is, what's the spiritual answer? You're like, okay, we've got, we've got five minutes left. <laughs> we haven't even got to the spiritual answer. What's the answer to spiritual presumption? Verses 12 and 13. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands... Take heed that he does not fall. The word therefore shows us this is the natural result of the previous 11 verses. This is the logical conclusion. Paul's saying, look, verses 1 through 11 are patently true. So logically, let's bring this to a conclusion. Therefore, here's what you need to remember. 
Let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. I mean, this is a Pauline parallel to Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. The problem here was pride. We can take pride in our spiritual privileges and our spiritual resources. We can take pride in the fact that we sit under good equipping and we have robust godly relationships and we have great preaching and great equipping and great small groups and then you rub shoulders with an old friend from, a, from another venue, another church or family members who aren't being equipped and suddenly you know more than they and you just kind of imagine, well, that's just like, it's just greasing the slime. I mean, like, I'm kind of immune to temptation because look at all that I've got. Your spiritual resource must never promote pride. If your spiritual resource is promoting pride, then you're squandering your spiritual resource. The more the glory of God that you get to see, the lower we ought to be. Every time. Every time. Verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And I hate to do this with just a couple minutes left. This is one of those verses that sometimes we throw out there and it becomes almost like a, a catchphrase, you know, like, don't worry, don't worry about that one, it's just common, common demand type sin. Okay, good, I feel better about it. That's the opposite of what Paul's doing. In fact, what's so profound about this, he's doing so much the opposite. Like, like let, me, let me step out of 1 Corinthians for a second. Let me just say it to you this way. Let's just say that as if, as if God gave you direct revelation which he doesn't, so that's not a, it's not a, I'm not condoning that, I'm using this as an illustration. If God gave you direct revelation that something was going to happen to you this week of tragic, paramount significance, earth-shattering, life-changing trial, it's coming Tuesday morning, 8.30 a.m., you'd gear up, wouldn't you? You'd be like, wow, I don't know what it is, but I'm, I'm in for the biggest temptation of my Christian walk. Paul's saying the exact opposite. He's saying, you don't have to watch out for those earth-shattering ones. You know what you need to watch out for? you got to watch out for the common ones. Watch out! Because they squandered spiritual resource. Well, what did they do? It was just like they came home and the whole family is dead? What, what kind of fear are you playing with in my mind right now? No, we're talking about craving something God hasn't given you. Putting God to the test. We're talking about complaining against his providence. Watch out. It's those common ones that will lead to apostasy because it did for them. You see the nature of verse 13 now? So powerful. Verse 13 is so powerful. In fact, to prove that that's the point, the next phrase starts in the NAS with the word and, but it's actually a disjunctive conjunction, and maybe a better translation would be but. But God is faithful. The contrast between the fact that Common, everyday sins can lead to squandering spiritual privilege and ultimately lead to being disqualified, 9.27. The contrast to that is God is faithful. Look to God. He's faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. Whenever you or I have fallen to temptation, it's not because God was unfaithful. It's because we were unfaithful. He has never placed us in a trial or a test 
where we were bound to fail. He's always given us the spiritual resource, and we just don't always avail ourselves of it. He's never let you be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also. Look at that. Don't don't try to get out of the testing. You're just talking about escaping the temptation. Escape the temptation while you're remaining under the testing so that you will be able to endure it. Well, if I'm escaping, what am I escaping? You're escaping temptation, remaining under testing. That's the only way forward. Believer, this is a sober, sober text, and um, I have benefited from it in my own heart so much that I wanted to share it with you. I just, before I close though, I just want to repeat what I said at the beginning. I did not bring this text because I had some sort of secret knowledge about some unique weakness of this church. I've just been so encouraged by my weekend with you. I've been so encouraged by the hunger for the word of God in this congregation. I've been so encouraged by your response to God's word. I've been so encouraged by uh, the, the leadership that I'm seeing in the church. And so knowing what I've seen in just a short snippet, I know that these temptations are going to be common to us. And so I pray that this is a benefit to you. Let me close in a word of prayer. Father, we're so thankful for this passage because, Lord, it's really a protection for us. Lord, we have so many spiritual blessings, and you're so kind to give them to us. I think of the believers in this church, um, the, uh, the, in, in, wherever they're at in their walk with you. Some, some are brand new, some are really mature, and, and uh, some are somewhere in between. Regardless, Lord, there's so many spiritual resources. I pray that they would avail themselves of these. I pray that it would always produce more and more humility and more and more dependence on you who alone is faithful. Lord, may may we never start to imagine something significant about ourselves because of grace. May we never begin to think highly of ourselves or think that something that you might be doing through mere men and women adds to our significance. You alone have all significance. And so lest we squander these spiritual privileges, keep us low. We do not want to imagine and presume that we're going to stand. We need to remember that it's just going to be the common ones, the ones that we're probably even struggling with this morning, that would, they, they have to go. Lord, by your Spirit, help us to cut off those aspects of our heart and soul that would complain against you and grumble against your providence, that would question you. You're such a great God. You are such an awesome God. You're worthy of all worship. You should never have to be treated that way by your children. We just want to confess, even corporately, anytime every complaint, every grumbling against your providence, it's, it's something you're not worthy of. Forgive us. Thank you so much for the shed blood of Christ that we could have sins like that forgiven. Keep us low. Keep us dependent on you. Thank you for being faithful even though we have not been. In your name we pray. Amen.